In the most divisive of times, the great debates rage on. Who was the best Batman? Was the book truly better than the movie? Did Han shoot first? Nerds with opinions will seek to answer life's greatest questions. Hello there, fellow nerds. You are listening to Nerds with Opinions, episode number 88. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin. Today on the podcast, I am joined by guest host, Jimmy Levins, and we are discussing and celebrating 45 years of Jaws, the Steven Spielberg classic that propelled his career into absolute superstardom, the film that basically set the tone and set a precedent for what would become the summer blockbuster, the shark film that scared us all, Jaws. It's 45 years old, and we thought it would be a fun opportunity to discuss this film at length and not only discuss its legacy, but kind of give it a review, see how it holds up over time, and discuss, you know, the cultural importance of it as well. All that today on Nerds with Opinions. I say we uh, just go ahead and get right into this. Agree. We are going to take a big bite into <laughs> this conversation. Of a Excellent. We're just going to, you know, dive right in, swim around a bit. Water. Water are we gonna talk about today, Matt? <laughs> oh man, you're you're a real shark with your questions, there, partner. I know. I'll, I'll try not to be too, uh, fangs a lot. I don't. I'll try not to be toothy about it. No, oh, no, no, no. We we uh had we've just jumped the shark, my friend. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, we're back. Nerds with opinions in the house. I am joined by guest host Jimmy Levins. Welcome, my friend. Good to be back. I got my watermelon bubbly, my cup of coffee, so I'm uh, double sipping today. That combination sounds awful. I'm just gonna say that right now. I, I, don't worry. It's a it's a palate cleanser. The high acidity of my coffee. It's a medium roast, higher acidity, so it's gonna cleanse the watermelon notes in my bubbly water. So I feel I, like the. I am. I've uh, got Yorkshire Gold. I don't know if you're familiar with Yorkshire tea. I'm English. I know all the teas. I drink Yorkshire gold like it's water every morning. Fresh from the tap. Being uh, being a quarter Welsh, I definitely, like, I don't drink coffee. I only drink tea. Um, and boy, oh boy, there's, I, I will have some, like, cheaper British tea. Like, I, um, I have Tetley a lot, but Yorkshire is... Oh yeah. So if I'm if I'm feeling in kind of a generalized sort of mood, but I want to have pretty decent tea, I have Yorkshire Red. Mm -hmm. And if I'm feeling fancy and special like I am today, I have uh, my Yorkshire Gold. And it's very interesting. Not that we need to really get out too far into the weeds on tea, but uh, the there is really like a a definite like taste quality in the two. And there certainly is. for a price point. I just bought both of them together and a hundred bags of Yorkshire red is I think only like 
half the price or a third of the price of um, a like like forty bags of Yorkshire Gold. Oh yeah, no, don't, don't, you're preaching the choir. Like I grew up having tea parties and watching Pride and Prejudice, the Collinsworth version, with my mom and sisters. <laughs> I know I know Yorkshire Gold tea very well, dude. It's 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 the best. It's a special. It's your specialty. Ah, yes. I know. I'll, I'll try to get us out of hot water on this one so we can dive in. <laughs> All right, you already did dive. I'll think of another shark pun later. Yeah. So we are discussing the classic, the classic shark horror action adventure film, Jaws, the Steven Spielberg classic. And what kind of inspired this was this year is the 45th anniversary, which is just like mind blowing that that's, I mean, obviously this film, you know, popped up well before either one of us were born, but I, I just feel like it's kind of been in my personal zeitgeist since I was a little boy. Cause it was one of like my, my mom, my mom's uh, favorite films. So it's like, 45 years old. I, I don't, I still, it, that just seems like a, an insane number, you know, even though like, of course I knew it was made in 1975, but that's like, wow, like 45 years ago. And you know, then it's like, makes you think of, Oh geez, that means Steven Spielberg's getting really old. Oh no. So yeah. we decided to do this, uh, this episode, but full, I, I kind of want to take this time to quickly talk about the IMDB top 250 because you and I have had this idea that we've been kicking around for a while and I'm going to fully, fully give credit where credit's due. This is kind of a derivative idea off of the unspooled podcast. You and I are both fans of that. They mm. cover the AFI top 100 and um, I kind of just got inspired by that and thought, well, you know, why isn't somebody doing, you know, some of the, uh, if not all, I don't think we're ever going to do all. I don't want to do all of them. But why isn't somebody doing the IMDb Top 250? Because in my opinion, that is a much more intriguing list because it is completely based on fan ratings and it is an ever-moving, ever-changing list because of the IMDb algorithm because it's all based on amount of votes. Uh, I actually looked up the... the the formula for it, it's fucking crazy. It's really, really, really complicated, the, the formula for for the, for the algorithm. But, it, you know, in layman's terms, it's basically just a, a formula that takes in consideration uh, uh, amount of votes. So, for instance, Jaws has 533,372 votes with an average rating of 8 out of 10 stars. What's interesting... So we were talking about doing this idea and kind of cherry picking certain films that we thought were, you know, important to cinema history off the IMD, IMDb to top 250. Talk about them, maybe compare to compare them to where they're at on the AFI top 100, 100 even if they are on there and have a discussion. And so because of Jaws having its 45th anniversary and Knowing that at one point it was on the IMDb top 250, I, you know, contacted you, Jimmy, was like, hey, this is the time. Let's let's I had just currently watched Jaws because because of the anniversary. I thought, let's do it. Let's do an episode on Jaws. And, you know, it's it's the first one we could do talking about the IMDb top 250. And then last night doing show notes for this, I realized, oh, no, 
it is not on the top 250 anymore. It got voted off. And so I feel like we kind of have to talk about that because apparently the last time it was on was just about this time. Uh, It was actually late August, but nearly about a year ago, it was like at 243 or 248, I think. I'd have to look up this this link because there's this website that actually tracks when a film first got on the list. And, and this one was on the list when they initially created the Internet Movie Database uh, in, in the late 90s. Like 96, I think it is. So it's been on the list that entire time and just got knocked off, which to me is a, a very fascinating thing about the IMDb to top 250. So let's quickly talk about that before we get into the rest of my questions, because we were kind of, ha- we were going to have that be a wrinkle of uh, this episode. And I think we will with future movies that are currently on the top 250, but we can we have, we have to discuss that real quick. It's weird for me because like I only started paying attention to the top 250 kind of when you first started bringing it up, like right when we yeah. did the first couple episodes, like I think you might even mentioned it. Like I think the first year we started doing the occasional once a month episode. Uh, right. And I'm like, and, I, and of course I knew of the AFI top 100 because like most people, like I watch a shitload of movies. And so I'm like checking off the top 100 movies I've seen. Yeah, and it's I, iconic. And, yeah. And like with Unspooled, I kind of logged every episode. I watched every movie along with it. And for the top 250, kind of, I was very skeptical for a while. Cause like, kind of like you said, like the, the list keeps changing so much to where, how can we keep up? And also it's daunting. Yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that it is based on fan fan votes. So it is most accurate of demographic and audience, which but I it like. It can be the most fickle. Yeah, exactly. Because the AFI is mostly like, you know, old industry people who want to vote for their friends. Hence why you see like five Spielbergs or four Scorsese films in the list one versus ones that came out more recently. And and, the, and the, that's why I like about the IMDb, because I feel like it gives a vast demographic and audience in terms of the selection. You kind of get something from each decade, each genre, each era. Well, what's and also international too? Yes, that's so I was going to say that. So, so you have foreign films on the IMD, IMDb t- top two fifty, as opposed to the AFI list is purely American films. And I mean, I get it; it's it's the American F- Film Institute. Um, but I think that that puts a bottleneck on a, a lot of you know am- amazing films that we that we should be just talking about just as in general are the greatest films of all time. So I think that that's, what's interesting about the IMDb top 250. And there's some like obscure, shockingly very obscure um, foreign films on there. So it's, it's not just a blockbuster list or a like critical acclaim list where I, I feel like that's kind of the meat and potatoes of the AFI list. It's, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do recognize like films that are culturally significant. They, they recognize films that were uh, groundbreaking in terms of film technique. But there is a there's a type of film that gets on that list where the IMDb top 250 is the Wild West. They're like there's it's all over the place. And I think that that's a cool representation but, you know, we'll talk uh, about the legacy of Jaws later in this episode, but I was shocked that that's not on the list anymore. And it makes me wonder, like, is it, is it because of its age? 
I mean, there's a plenty of really old films on there, so maybe it's not, but I, I, is, is the age of the film, is it less relevant? And I guess I, we'll, we'll discuss that, you yeah. know, through this, this podcast, but it really, I was shocked by that. I, I, I wasn't necessarily shocked that, you know, for instance, like the last time it was on the list was high 200s. That, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. I, I figured it would be lower on the list, but not even on it. That's yeah. mind blowing. I think I think definitely the IMDb list, especially because pe- there are more movies coming out more than ever, especially now versus in the 70s. So I feel like, and like you said, since they open up to international, there's more films that could be logged into it. And also I feel like IMDb fans or reviewers suffer recency effect. So some of the higher rated movies may not be like, like for instance, I was looking to see what's on there and like you have, not to say these are bad movies, but they just seem oddly in place with like the typical American classics or international classics. Because you have things like Hotchie, A Dog's Tale, Rush, V for Vendetta. Not to say that those aren't bad movies, but then you see that next to like most recently Parasite or Bohemian Rhapsody. It just seems weird to see like, I feel like fans definitely suffer like, of course, like Hachi's probably on there because it's about a dog, so people's heartstrings. So 10 stars, 10 stars, 10 stars. <laughs> right. So I feel like there's kind of that factor in play and also how well they age. So I'm with you there with Jaws because I feel like ideally, I almost wonder if every user should be required to change their view rating because I'm like, do you really like this movie like the same way you did five years ago, six years ago? Because I think that's going to be interesting because, of course, Shawshank Redemption is never left number one it's still holding up there strong uh, and that's fascinating too it's like how long is that going to to be up there well so this is interesting too did you notice that now and, and i'm sorry i i don't think that this should be on this list hamilton the yeah. the stage you know film stage uh show of hamilton that has now been on disney plus is 24 and i mean hey I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's it's amazing. It's got 8.6, but I, like that, I, I'm sorry. I don't think that that should be considered on a list of motion pictures. It, it's tricky it, too, and that's why I bring back the whole, the, the recency effect and also the fandom and nerddoms that kind of right. dominate the internet. Now. And you're, I think IMDb is kind of vague because they do log in recorded performances uh, yeah. or TV movies. And I think that's okay, but in terms of this list, it it almost suffers from not having enough parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I do think, and for the listeners that are interested in you know these episodes that we do about films, to give you something to look forward to, we we are definitely going to, <laughs> to you know, uh, make a calculated choice. Maybe we'll we'll start higher uh, well you know like uh, well technically i suppose um yeah higher on the list to kind of ensure that it's going to be something that hasn't been bumped off of it yet um but so we'll we'll do we'll do an episode maybe to kind of like intro this as a series that we're going to do but i i just wanted to bring it up because i thought that's what we were going to be doing today and i was i was shocked to find that jaws is no longer on the list um so yeah we we could have more of a discussion about kind of how this list works because it's fascinating to me it's it's far more interesting it you know for for better or for worse than the afi top 100 so mm-hmm. with that being said kind of as, as an intro of what we were going to do with this we're still going to have kind of a comprehensive discussion about 
the legacy of Jaws and some of the interesting things uh, about the production because it is a fascinating, uh, you know, production disaster story, which those are those are always fun to talk about. So let's just start off with, do you remember the first time you saw Jaws? Like, what were your initial thoughts? And if you remember how old you were, I, I would love to, to know that because I, I feel like you're you always, there's always like, uh, there's never an in-between. You usually have watched films as either a young child or not until you were in college in film school. Yes. Like, and definitely when I got my own car and could drive to like the library or video store and just rent constantly. Right. Back when there was so a block. I'm always, I'm always interested to, to hear when people have, you know, what age they were when they, when they saw classic films. Well, uh, I think because the notion, the, the the rating system in the seventies was kind of weird. I think wasn't Jaws like PG technically or something like that? Because uh, that was yeah, PG. Yeah. Get out! I love it. And that's I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest. I I like the the seventies and eighties rating system. Yeah, I, I I feel like it's it's a little whack now because there's. Like, for instance, we talked about it with Back to the Future. There's, like, you know, the worst thing they have in there. It, it's PG as well. Like, they say shit. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. It shouldn't It shouldn't be any more. Like, but now that'd be PG-13. Anyways, I digress. Oh, no, but, but yes. you're definitely... <laughs> Joss is my, PG. The fact that it was PG and the fact that it, my parents saw it when it came in theaters because they're that generation, they felt like, oh, Jimmy might like Jaws. Because I remembered we were... I'm trying to think. I can't remember which coastal town it was. I think it might have been like either Newport or Oceanside, because we have a we have a family friend who has like a like a, a beach house in both places. So I, it was one of those two, and I was I want to say maybe uh, twelve at the time, and okay. like maybe eleven, and it was just on VHS because like what better reason to have at a beach house than a movie about a horror movie set on a beach Perfect. In, in a side town. So, I, And everyone's like, oh, Jimmy and Danny, there's my brother, haven't seen Jaws, let's watch Jaws. And I don't think it was my parents' decision because at the time, I think that might have been the most intense horror movie I saw at that moment outside of like the more like emotionally scarring Disney movies uh, at that young age. But then it's like when I, I remembered when I... It was definitely at a time where I had some queasiness about the waters and swimming by myself and diving in deep and some anxiety, swimmer's anxiety as a child. So Giles did not help that at all. In <laughs> fact, I, so I remember, we had this old VHS tape, so it was kind of scratchy, but it still, you know, we were able to watch the whole thing. But I kid you not, like after watching it, I definitely spent the whole time in the hot tub, never got in the ocean once. Uh, so, and so I feel like in that movie to this day, like it hasn't like made me afraid of the water, but it's definitely made me nervous about like diving deep and seeing what's down there. Uh, and even, even in the lake near my parents' property, like I never like swimming alone. Like that's just the one, like, no, like, like to this day, like, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have caused by Jaws, but Jaws didn't help, especially right, sure. at the young age. Uh, and like, yeah, no, so I was really young when I saw it. Like, uh, I really liked it, of course. Like, so it might have been not necessarily my first Spielberg. My first one might have been E.T. Uh, but like, it was definitely one that 
kind of like with ET2. It definitely scares you when you're a little kid. Yeah, there's a certain level of intensity um, in those films, even though they... I, I don't know. Honestly, I... As, as an adult now, I don't have children, but if I had children... I wouldn't have a problem with showing a 12 year old this. I mean, I honestly probably would, would feel fine with showing maybe even like a 10 year old, this movie because it's scary, but like, I don't feel like there's any other content in it that is like, you know, too crass or offensive or, you know, and it's not like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's not that level of scary. That's like too psychological or like it, it, I don't know. Well, I think it definitely depends. I think now we're more exposed to like, we're more desensitized to violence and media now more than ever. So yeah. I, I almost feel like, and also I was, a, and, and mind you for more context, I was a very sensitive child. And so I've never seen a movie where you see like decapitated limbs and like shark <laughs> uh, And like, so I think it, actually I might've even been 10 cause I might've been like the fourth grade or something when I saw this movie. So I've been younger as I'm trying to deep down to my memory caverns. Uh, so like, I just never saw much grotesque stuff like that. So I think Jaws yeah. made it been like the whole like, oh my God, that shark used to go big body on that person. <laughs> <laughs> or, I don't know. Uh, but like, it's definitely, I was definitely a sensitive kid. So. Yeah. That's fair. So I, I don't actually remember the first time I saw this, but like in terms of the exact age, but same sort of thing. I, I feel like I was about, somewhere between 10 and 12. That sounds right uh, for when I watched it too. And um, I think it was one of those things where like my mother was really into this film and like she, she still talks about it. She saw it at the, the Holly theater and, and Medford oh, nice. uh, when it first came out. And um, so she really liked it and was like, Oh yeah, I think, think these guys are old enough to watch it. Um, so I, I remember it being, you know, scary in some moments, but, but I, I liked it cause it's, it's exciting. There's, you know, there's, there's definitely a sense of adventure for it. Once, uh, the, the main three characters go kind of on the hunt for jaws. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, it was so long ago that like my perception of filmmaking was just so different as a kid. Like you're, you don't know anything about filmmaking. So it's just, you're kind of, which can be interesting because you're kind of watching the film just for what it is and not like analyzing it or anything. Uh, so that was kind of my initial thoughts on it, that it was just really cool. But I also remember like not getting that vibe of like thinking, you know, that the Bruce, the shark was, cheesy looking or fake or anything like that. Like it, it all, you know, I mean, I grew up on practical effects. We, you know, I, I was a child of the late eighties and, and through the nineties. So, you know, and, and, and I, in my house, we watched a lot of like films from the seventies and earlier seventies and earlier. So I don't know, it, like it, it all jived. It didn't, it didn't look like, Oh wow. That looks so fake. I can't take it serious. Uh, so and, you know, and I grew up on, like you said, E.T. and everything. So I grew up on the Spielberg film. So, yeah, the, I remember really enjoying it. The music creeped me out. So, yeah, I, I, I liked it at an early age. But then I had this huge gap um, until the next time I saw it. So let's talk about 
kind of what was happening when this film came out. So in the summer of 1975, this comes out and right initially over 67 million people see it. And that, that first kind of premiere time. And this just became basically the, the first summer blockbuster. It's considered the, the first summer blockbuster. What do you think captivated audiences so much about it? Like, why do you think that this was the film that broke that barrier and then kind of created this this thing that we're we're still living with the the summer blockbuster? Well, it kind of I was kind of curious to see how long it held its title as like a blockbuster because I knew that like it was until Star Wars two years later. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like if it weren't for Star Wars, Jaws would have been like at the at least even even until then, arguably like the highest pressing one of the highest blockbusters. But like I know the whole notion of like. I mean, really, every blockbuster starts off with kind of word of mouth. I feel like before you would have, like, the internet, before you would have, like, uh, multi-platform, like, marketing for audiences, where you would just literally have just posters and billboards and trailers and other movies, you'd have word of mouth. Uh, and so in that was even before, like, like uh, Jaws, we had, like, uh, like, Exorcist was kind of the same boat. Even before then, we had, like, even freaking Gone with the Wind, because there was almost, like, this knowledge of it in the demographic and also it was a popular book so i feel like there already was all this like uh uh like uh audience for it because it was a bestseller when it came out so i feel like the hype that oh they're making an adaptation of this uh, hit book let's go see this movie and then more and more people are like recommending it to you so you tell two friends they tell another two friends and it just goes on 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 and especially like when was it? Was it released in the summer or like when did it actually come out? It was it was June of 1975, which and is think, interesting because it was actually slated for a December release and all the production issues uh, and everything. They kind of actually just pushed it out because they thought it was just because it, it, before then, like Christmas releases were what you wanted to do, like winter hmm. right around Christmas. Like that was the, the sweet spot. And they're like, oh, this thing's going to be a f- a turd it's gonna you know totally be a disaster let's just put it out in the summer you know oh and that now i think that definitely helped a lot because like it's summer it's a summer movie um like especially like and also it's it's i feel like you really are in that type of mood it's the type of movie like oh let's go see a movie that takes place on the beach uh and also i think the fact that like there have always been like horror blockbusters and i feel like there's so there always was like a taste in the audience just see something that shocks and scares you. Uh, Cause of course this like literally cause Jaws may have been the first labeled blockbuster, but I feel like that there was the existence of it even before then when we had like the exorcist, cause it had the same type of audience reactions, the same type of lines yeah. at the door, the same type of popularity with the book. Cause really at the time, if you wanted a hit movie, you adapt it from a hit book. That was kind of like the, the kind of like the, at the time the, that still happens. <laughs> Well, it, winning, it, it, winning it, formula, apparently. Yes, it, it still works to this day. Like, because uh, really, that was kind of like the really, because oh man, I at the time, yeah, we don't read books anymore. What do we do now? <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, no, I, I guess now we're adapting podcasts into movies and TV shows. Like, but yeah. no, it's like um, adapting anything. Oh yeah, yeah. So I feel like I don't know. I, I really, I'm not as versed on like who came first in terms of like, Oh, did like, uh, did like, so do you have the book and then the director, the director knew about the book before the studio. So I'm not quite sure on that timeline, 
but I feel like there already was an audience for this type of movie. And I feel like just the, the stars aligned, the timing was right. Uh, and I think just the demographic was already kind of like hungry for something different. And then it just all kind of worked out. I, I tend to think that a, this movie is like we were kind of mentioning earlier, even though it is scary and there are elements of horror in it, it's fairly accessible for a horror film because it isn't, it doesn't really cross that threshold of, Oh, this isn't really like a family movie. You know, even if we have like kind of preteen kids or teenage kids, like, you know, like arguably the exorcist, I like, I personally, if I had a kid, I would like, if they were out, like even like 13, I'd probably be like, eh, let's maybe yeah. wait a couple more years. Like that movie is scary as all hell, man. And it is, it's really, really graphic and, and, and gnarly. Um, whereas, there are moments of, of Jaws being graphic, but it's in a completely different way. Completely different way. It's it's much more grounded in in reality. Um, and whereas you know, regardless of whatever your beliefs are, you have to you have to admit that that uh, the Exorcist delves into the surreal, regardless of whether you believe in demonic possession and everything. And so, just using those as comparisons. I think this film is just like, yeah, it's, it's much more accessible. And then even though there are horror elements and there are like, that's kind of like this, this thread through it. There's also this interesting action adventure, uh, thread. So it's, it's multi-genre. So I think that helps. And, and I want to talk about this in, in more depth a little later, but I think this also, Spielberg is kind of using his whole bag of tricks in this film. And he's like, in terms of filmmaking technique, he is, you know, using techniques of all, of all the greats. Like he's, he's basically like this, he's seizing this opportunity to go, okay, you know, I, I am, I once was the Padawan. Now I am the Jedi master. Let, let me show everybody what I can do. And, you know, because he's a student of the game. We talked about that when we did a podcast all about Spielberg's career. And he, uh, I think he really makes this film accessible because he uses a lot of techniques that, especially the filmmaking at the time and that and what came before it, which is kind of all really classic filmmaking. He uses these kind of recognizable cinematography techniques, lighting techniques that we're comfortable with. And it's not it's not so abrasive and it wasn't so like, Oh wow. Like this is way too ahead of its time. It, 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 it totally fit in the time because he was kind of paying a lot of homage to like previous films in terms of like his technique. You know, I, I think Jaws is a very original film, mm-hmm. but the way that it, it aesthetically comes off, it's not so harsh and abrasive that people couldn't, you know, absorb it. Well, so I, I think that's a, a huge part of it. And it's also, I, I think the other thing about it is that it's, excuse me, uh, it's got that grand scale of what now we kind of consider blockbusters to be in. Whereas a lot of the filmmaking going on and like the, earlier part of the seventies were like really gritty and you know, like smaller productions. 
smaller budget. And, and this they had a relatively small budget. Um, it was still, you know, not tiny for it at the time. I think it was like nine million. Uh, let's look that up. Nine million. Um, wow. Made four hundred and seventy point seven million. What a return. So nine million. Uh, that was small ish, but, you know, definitely not like tiny indie budget for the time. But I it was it still had a little more money behind it being a universal picture than some of the other films that were coming out at the time. And it it, it just had that feel of kind of a more grandiose sort of production. So talking about that, this movie really kind of sets the tone from here on out of Spielberg's career as a blockbuster director, blockbuster filmmaker, uh, blockbuster producer even. And had he not made Jaws, do you think his career would have had the same kind of trajectory in terms of success and the, the films he made following? Well, he already definitely had a few string of hits before then. Like, cause I think, cause like looking at his timeline, this came out in 75. So he already done at least, uh, a couple handful of like popular movies. Cause he made, of course, the TV film duel. He made sugar, uh, sugar land express. And all those were well received. Like sugar land express won him an award at the Cannes film festival. And so I, and so I feel like jaws definitely accelerated his career. I think he would have still had not necessarily the the same level of career he has now if it weren't for Jaws, but he probably would have had like that moment later in the decade, even if not in the eighties, like there would have been almost like this gap because he was about our age when he did Jaws. He was like, he, well, cause he was like, I think tw- younger than me, actually. He was like maybe 26. Yeah, I was going to say he was younger and so than us. I think he would have been given like the Jaws vehicle movie, like later on. Cause because of Jaws, then he was given the blank check to do things like, Close Karen of Third Kind. And that was another like hit movie to make him want to make other ones. So I feel like he would have just maybe had a later spurt in his career. But like he already it, it's kind of interesting because looking at his previous filmography, it was like he was he definitely doesn't write as much as he used to. And like he's definitely in this one, this was like his first foray into just directing versus like being a screenwriter and a director. Uh it was kind of like and it it's kind of interesting to see him being given this vehicle. But then when you look at like his arc as a director leading up to this, it kind of, you can kind of see it in the stars of where like, okay, like this director who's done these types of movies fit well to this, especially when you see things like duel, which literally is a weird came out in 71 literally is a jaw vehicle, except for the fact that instead of a jaw, a shark it's this truck driver who's chasing down this uh, guy, this guy on, a free, on a highway all because he cut him off. And no matter what he does, he can't seem to get rid of this truck driver who's trying to drive him off the road. You just see like the grill of the truck. You don't see the driver. You just see like the rusty uh, like metal shades. You just see like the spinning wheels. Uh, and it, in the Hitchcockian sense, um, like it's this man on the run. And, the, and so I feel like literally the truck and duels was literally like the like, hey, let's give this kid a shark. Let's, get, let's make him direct Jaws. Because you can kind of see it like, that he had like the, the interest and the drive, so to speak, to uh, have this type of like career as a suspense adventure thriller director. So 
my take on this question is that I agree with you. I think that maybe he would have had like some of these kind of paramount moments with the films that he has made maybe later on. But then I don't know. Like I was just looking at his filmography and after Jaws, his run is from basically like, oh boy, 75 basically to like the late nineties. And he still is making great films after the late nineties, but is so strong. Like he hardly has any misses, but just, so just the run from 75 to the late eighties though, you've got immediately after jaws, two years later, you have close encounters. You have Raiders of the lost Ark in 81 ET in 82 Indiana Jones, the temple of doom in 84 you got The Color Purple in 85. You have Empire of the Sun in 87. You have Indiana Jones The Last Crusade in 89. And then that leads into the early 90s where he makes Hook, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List all back-to-back. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people may say Hook, but it was very, very successful as well in terms of the blockbuster. I look at that list and I think, especially with Close Encounters being the next film, and I, I've... I'm sure. Have you seen the documentary about Jaws? Not the, doc, the not the Spielberg doc, but the one that's specifically about Jaws. I think I have. I know I've seen a lot of making of store, uh, like shorts, like short docs, or even the other people like about the making of Jaws. And like, right. I kind of to kind of piggyback on something I, I said earlier. I almost theorized like there's times where I was because he always had like that brat pack of directors he was hanging out with. It makes yeah. me wonder if he was never given Jaws which would basically kind of uh, like, you know, catapult him into doing other movies into the career he had now. I almost wonder if he didn't do Jaws, what would have been like his hit movie? Like what if, like with an alternate universe where he decides to direct George Lucas's Star Wars? Like I always wondered like what would have been like the trajectory had been, like what would have been his his hit movie? That's kind of what I always wondered. It's hard to say. All I know is what I was going to say about like Close Encounters that is a bold, bold film. It's oh, very, no. very bold. And he, I know you mentioned it in the Spielberg doc. And I I want to say he, that they talk about it also in the Jaws doc, where a lot of the films that he did post a successful film was in in reaction to however successful the, the last project was. Where, mm-hmm. you know, he... Like, for instance, you know, I know there's like there's a lot of um, a lot of discussion about like when he did Schindler's List, like he had to do a bunch of these films before then to get the confidence to do Schindler's List and to be in like the right like headspace to do Schindler's List and do it justice. And he is that kind of director where he's like there's been projects where he's kind of resisted like doing it at first. And apparently Jaws was one of these as well. Like he didn't think he could do it justice at first. And I think he has to get like confidence in whatever the next project is. And I look at jaws and I don't know if he would have had the confidence in himself as a director to do close encounters and then Raiders and, you know, then, then lead into his his early nineties output, which are like, in terms of scale, 
like the craziest films he's done, you know, Schindler's List and, and Jurassic Park. So I agree with you that he probably would have went on to do some of these interesting films um, that maybe weren't as big a blockbusters as some of his other, you know, giant, giant films like a Jurassic Park or an E.T. or, or Jaws for that matter. But I, I don't know. Like I look at Close Encounters being the one right after Jaws and I'm not sure if he would have. He definitely would have had the same confidence. You're right. No, uh, yeah. He would have been almost, maybe he could have been just a director for hire, like a studio guy that just kind of every now and again, will just kind of do something that the studio contracts going to do. And then every other th- movie, he'll do something to kind of get his confidence going, but there might have been a bigger lull between movies or that's just speculation, of course. Right. So let's talk a bit about the production. So <laughs> this, and that's why if, if anybody that's listening to this, if, if you haven't seen the um, making of Jaws documentary or the Spielberg documentary, they're great watches. Uh, the Spielberg documentary talks a bit about Jaws because it's a very infamously difficult and disastrous production and tons of issues uh, for one there was, you know, everybody knows about this, that Bruce the Shark, Bruce the, uh, was the name of his lawyer, so that's why he he uh, dubbed it Bruce the Shark, would not work. Like, it was, a, the mechanical shark was a constant headache because they tested it in freshwater tanks at Universal Studios, then they put it in salt water, and the salt water just destroyed it. That also led into issues with how much they shot in the water, uh, this was, uh, I was looking up, this was like the first l- large scale film that was shot in in the ocean, uh, like in terms of like this much of it being shot in the ocean. There's, um, I think it was like 70% of it is shot in the water. Mm-hmm. And so that was another thing that they weren't prepared for. The fishing boat that they use, the Orca, uh, Quince fishing boat. It famously sunk in that last uh, scene with the battle with the shark. The filming went way over schedule. There was very mat like now infamous tension between, uh, especially be- like between all the main actors, but specifically between Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus. So we've heard tons of stories about production disasters becoming great films, Apocalypse Now, The Shining. Why do you think Jaws was was like, you know, those films that were just a disaster, but they worked despite all of the production issues? It's it's so, so weird because that's always been a common theme in the quote unquote great movies in American filmmaking is. And also our culture tends to always put just a high pedestal, the movie. But I'm wondering, are they more like responding to the insane production behind it or like the whole what the director had to go through? It's it's kind of weird because I don't necessarily like. I, it, it may, they basically make it sound like a disastrous production makes a great movie, which unfortunately I don't think should be the, always the case, but like, it's, well, I, I think it's, we only hear about it if the movie turns out great because what, so yeah. we, we've talked a bit about this on this podcast. I think at, at one point, I don't remember what, what episode it was, but I know we've talked about like production disasters like or like with, uh, it, I, it was a while ago. I don't, I honestly don't remember, but I, I know it's been discussed on here, but the one thing that I always like to bring up in talking about production disasters, yes, we always hear about 
the apocalypse now. So we, we hear about the, you know, the shinings. The ones that we don't talk about are like the Island of Dr. Moreau remake in the nineties <laughs> with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. That movie bombed. And so actually there's a great doc about that, but it's, it's not, we don't have it in the conversation as much as we, you know, as uh, Titanic or like, or apocalypse now um, or jaws for that matter, because those transcended the production issues and, and became great films. So I, I think that's part of it because there's been, way 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 more production disasters than you know this short list of films that we talk about and they just get lost in the annals of 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 time because the film is bombed you know or oh, they yeah. didn't even get off the ground so that's my argument for for you know does I, it, it's does kind production of disasters lead to success i know it's like a Honestly, like there are times where like, I'm just like uh, the whole dynamic between Shaw and Dreyfus is kind of, it's kind of weird because you see these two different types at the time, very big actors, uh, the typical English trained classical actor, and then the up and coming American actor. And you kind of almost see these two, two different things collide a lot. Like specifically, they're totally different people. They're playing characters that also don't like each other. So I think that kind of worked in their favor. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And there's also, I mean, I don't want to assume, but I would imagine at the time, the classically trained actors probably had a huge uh, frustration with the annoying, like, up-and-coming, like, American actors who were just sort of like, I'm just going to get in there and do this. Like, the totally different approaches, the totally different chemistry, uh, kind of, there's almost, I would imagine there's more, um, what's the term, there's almost more discipline in the classically trained actors when there's a little more like loosey goosey. I mean, no- maybe yeah. dude, I, and we'll talk a little bit about like the character dynamics a little mm-hmm. later, but dude, I was looking up and I didn't know like some of Robert Shaw's issues going on during this time. I don't know how disciplined he was. There are stories about he was drunk before every oh, take because yeah. he was a raging alcoholic. And part oh, of it, he, he used the argument of like, Oh, I'm going method because you know, there is that scene where, Quint is they're they're all drunk and he talks about um the USS Indianapolis going down and which is like one of the best scenes in the whole film. Yeah. But there's a very famous story that he insisted on being like uh being method drunk the first time that they they shot that. He was so wasted that they they couldn't even get a good take on it. So the next day he had to like they had to come back and reshoot it and he he actually was sober and he apologized to Spielberg and was like Hey, you know, I shouldn't have ever done that. But he still was like a raging alcoholic the whole time. Um, And he also like, (laughs) he hardly got paid for this film because like he, he was in such like uh, uh, in such trouble with his taxes that he was, that's why he was shooting an American film because he like owed taxes in England. And, Mm. and (laughs) so like movie. Yeah. His wife, wife, her daughter made him do it. And he usually, and he said in an interview how I trust their judgment because I didn't want to do like to Russia with love and they told me to do it and it worked out. So like, I mean, so I, 
I don't know. I mean, you, you might be right in terms of like his methodology as an actor. It might have been disciplined, but I don't think as a person that he was oh, yeah. or, or a professional. I don't think he was disciplined at all during this. But yeah, that whole lean, the whole like legion of like British actors in the 60s and 70s, like Peter O'Toole, uh, like and, uh, uh, Richard Burton, Robert Shaw, even like the guy who played uh, like Dum- the original Dumbledore in Harry Potter. I'm spacing on his name. That's Richard Harris. Harris. They were all like, they would, my God, the the, the, the <laughs> stories they say like are insane. Like there's just, some- just get loaded before you, before you, uh, before you like, act. Oh yeah. No, like literally like look him up and you get a chance, but look up Richard Harris talking about his drunken escapades with Piero tool. And they're insane. Like, like, oh, like sure. yeah, like I, I, I can go on and on about their, those stories. Cause they're insanely amazing, but they're scary. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I, I I'm thinking that you know, I think the one thing that you see as a commonality with production disasters are when the filmmaker or filmmakers can be show a level of uh, ingenuity and be adaptive with the the production disasters and i think why this one works is every thing that was going wrong the producers and spielberg would adjust would adjust to to make those disasters work yeah uh, so so for instance you know with with bruce the shark the you know and we'll we'll talk a little bit more specifically about this um, a little later. We talk about the use of practical effects, but Bruce the shark having it not work honestly led to a a better film in my opinion because then they had okay well we can't get it to work if we spend any more time trying to get it to work we're gonna go even further over budget even further over schedule so let's have less of the shark. And that was a happy accident that led into the kind of Hitchcockian less is more approach. And it it really worked in their advantage or the, you know, the tension between the actors, like you were mentioning, like that led to a really great, like on screen chemistry, you know, Um, or I suppose maybe it's like not chemistry, it's, it's tension, but there's chemistry in, in tension, you know, that they're behind the scenes tension you know, led into a good tension between their characters. Mm-hmm. So I, I think why this works is that, that they, there was constant, um, you know, adaptive sort of fluid reactions to, to these problems or, you know, even the fishing boat sinking, they were like, all right, well, this is going to be the last shots on the fishing boat. And we're just going to get a bunch of shots, you know, of Richard Dreyfuss's character, Basically, or excuse me, um, the chief. Yeah, no, 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 no. Because he's dead at that point. Brody. So Chief Brody, he's, you know, he's, we're going to have him like basically on the crow's nest. Yeah. yeah, uh, And so, you know, they just constantly were, were, were making, making things work. And I think that's why it it still works is that there's, you know, there wasn't like a, well, we're kind of just going (laughs) to. lay down and, and, and die with this production disaster. There, there were constantly, you know, fluid and, and, and moving. And, and I think that's 
that's what you see in, in, in a film like Titanic or a film like uh, Apocalypse Now, where there was that rising above the the issues and, and that were marring the film. And it is amazing to see what people can accomplish under restrictions and uh, how well they can uh, like, uh, like make productive energy out of stress. Uh, yeah. And I think, that, like you said, this is an example of that where I mean, I don't want to assume that Spielberg was as much of a dictator on set as like Coppola or Cameron was, but like, it's definitely, it definitely, everyone learned how to, it's like the whole pivot, proceed and perish. And they knew where to pivot versus proceed so they wouldn't perish because perish wasn't the option. There was too much going on them. So I like I, that. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's like, it's basically, I mean, if you're in that such a high stakes where everything's in the line, it's like, you gotta adapt to survive. Kind of like a shark. You gotta keep moving. Like, yeah. Great analogy. Yeah. And I think that when you said um, when everything's on the line, I think that Spielberg knew that this was his like one big shot. And what's interesting is you hear all these, you know, interviews with him about this film and and he's talked a lot about it where he was kind of like at a certain point, he became very, very cynical of just like, well, this is, you know, just going to this is all going absolutely horrible. (laughs) It's going to end up being horrible. But you still, you still, you know, had him making, taking measures and making decisions to still make it work and still get that product out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't, obviously like, I don't see anywhere where he just kind of gave up and just kind of accepted like, well, this is going to be a piece of crap. Let's just finish it. it that, that obviously didn't happen. So mm-hmm. I think that's the other reason why it, it still works because he, um, he, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he persevered. That, that's what I was looking for. He persevered and, and everybody else that worked on this film persevered. Cause it, I've also heard stories about, you know, the, just the rest of the crew. And it sounds like it was oh, absolutely awesome. miserable when, when the boat, when the boat sank, there's a really funny story that the sound, uh, crew were in the, uh, the lower, the lower decks in the cabin area. And, when it started sinking and they're like, Oh my God, this thing's taking on water. Like legitimately, uh, there was a funny story where Spielberg was on a, uh, a, a bullhorn and he was like, save the actors, save the actors. And then apparently there's a very famous line. Cause it's like, it, it's, it was, the audio was rolling. The, uh, the guy that was running the audio is just like, fuck the actors, save the audio crew or something that, uh, to that effect. But it, it, his line was fuck the actors. <laughs> Cause they were like in a much more dangerous spot at, at the, below the decks. Um, so let's move. I want to specifically discuss because the the biggest production disaster on Jaws is is like I mentioned, Bruce the the shark's mechanical issues, and I talked a bit about how that led to Spielberg kind of changing his approach to the horror aspects in the film. You know, show less of the shark and kind of build up that anticipation of you know and, and that fear in like oh it's scarier or what we don't see. And it's a very Hitchcockian sort of approach. Like I, I mentioned, how do you think that affected the film? Do you think it made for a better product or, or is there somewhere in the, uh, you know, in, a, in another, in another timeline, there's the, the jaws that is full, full shark. Do you think that would, you know, work as well? I, uh, it's tricky too, because like there are times where like, 
and it's definitely uncanny valley where like the human eye can recognize when something's fake. And I think the more the shark, I would imagine the more the shark broke, the more kind of obviously fake it looked to like those in the crew. So there's almost like, and so I think that that's where we knew like, okay. Cause I think if we are responding well to it in like probably the, um, the, 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 uh, the dailies, then our audience isn't either. And I think, kind of what you said earlier about Steven Spielberg as a student of the game, like using Hitchcockian elements, classical elements of 40s cinema and uh, classical Hollywood. There was a very similar horror movie that existed before Jaws used that very similar approach. Uh, Have you ever seen Cat People, like the one from the 40s? No. But like it was in a very similar situation because um, the producer Val Luton, who is definitely a big influence on people like Spielberg and like Scorsese, would do these very like cheap B studio movies that had high uh, aesthetic and artistic value. Uh, very like European directors with notions of like, um, uh, um, like expressionism. But then the cat people, you would never see the transformation between the woman turning into like the, this ancient cat deity. Uh, you would only hear sounds. You'd see shadows versus someone dressed up in a cat costume. So I think Jaws is kind of, uh, in a way, like a a, a, chi- a future child offspring of that type of approach to horror. Because there is terror in the unseen. And even in classic literature, there's always this, you see your, the writers using descriptions and to help create tone, then you visually seeing the monsters. So I think that whole thing has already existed, but I feel like Jaws somehow like worked for its benefit. Because I don't think I would we would have responded well if we just saw the, the shark the whole time. Because... Of course, we respond well to E.T. because we had better effects budget at the time. There's more of a sense of humanity added to it. But for Jaws, there's got to be a lack of humanity. We want to fear it versus feel for it. Uh, yeah. And so I feel like it's trickier for like like fake-looking animals because I think humanity doesn't really have much of an affection toward sharks or fish. We do toward like dogs and humanoid-looking like beings like with Harry the Hendersons and E.T., but for yeah. sure, it's hard for us to kind of create uh, a, a reaction to it, especially when, well, how can we find something scary when it's obviously fake? And sure, like you can see, like I would imagine like this, this t- different timeline where you see like, like before a green screen, you just see like these wires moving the flip, the, the fins around right. and open it off. Like you actually see the puppeteer inside or something kind of cheesy like that to break the wall and well, kind of, so my argument to this is exhibit a all of the Jaws sequels yes. that is a perfect argument for why the less is more approach is better. Um, those films, you know, they, they kind of had figured out the, the mechanical shark, you know, and then by the, by the time that they got to like Jaws four, you got more, you know, graphic level effects, blue screen, that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's for the better. I don't think it's for the better, but just, just because you have that tool doesn't necessarily mean you should use it. Oh, and yeah. I personally, I, I think, yeah, that this was a happy accident and the Hitchcockian approach is with kind of more atmosphere, you know, the, the, the music, and we'll talk about the music a bit here soon, but the music I think really helps build that, that tension. And I personally find I, I rather than the kind of jump scare and there are some jump scares in this that are that are great a I, you know having just rewatched it I still got I got 
you know, scared by those jump scares. But I think what is more interesting with this film is that sense of foreboding terror, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, something, you know, ominous is, is, is a foot. And I love that in, in horror making uh, horror film, uh, horror filmmaking. I like that kind of like, visceral sense of just like oh i'm very uncomfortable right now i i'm i'm creeped out i you know i feel this tension and this film does that really really well and it's it's a subtle approach that i think has a a longer lasting effect than jump scare jump scare jump scare jump scare jump scare Mm -hmm. because you know when you talk about horror films when you usually the the long lasting effect is like when you hear somebody go, oh, man, that film just like oh made me really uncomfortable. It creeped me out. You don't go. You don't hear somebody go. Oh, my gosh. Like there was like 25 jump scares. Like, you know, it's 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 a really yeah. kind of yeah. <laughs> it's a instant gratification sort of way approach to, to horror filmmaking. And, and I'm OK with that. But I think you can go overboard with it and it it doesn't mean a whole lot Mm -hmm. so i think the atmospheric approach that ultimately this you know this film had to take is really 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 great and just talking about the shark and little glimpses of the shark and the music did a lot more than just show 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 to piggyback on that Obviously, you know, Mechanical Shark and everything, this is heavy practical effects. And there, this film is chock full of practical effects. You know, there's like from the scene where they're, you know, gutting the shark that ev- the townspeople are like, oh, this is the one. This is the one that's killing everybody. And it clearly wasn't, you know. And then like they have that scene of like the guts all fall out. And I love that scene. It's like the the actor's reaction to it is is really, really great. And then you have like some of the shark attack scenes where they, I was reading to really get the, 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 the watercolor, you know, to be, to look like it was filled with blood to really pop. They purposely, and when they, they shot at Martha's Vineyard and they made sure that in any sort of shots they had, there was no red in terms of like no red houses, no red buildings, no red, no red signs. Mm -hmm. So that the red, the blood, the blood red would just pop on that, the blue of the water. I found oh. that very interesting. And then, you know, even uh, the scene where they find the girl's arm on the beach. Do you know how they did that? How? So they used like, you know, just a prop arm. And Steven Spielberg was like, they shot it. And he's like, dude, it, it looks totally fake. So they <laughs> they took uh, somebody working on the production. I, I don't remember what this woman's pr- profession was, but they literally buried her in the sand other than her arm and just had her arm sticking out of the sand. That's how they did it. And then they just applied makeup to the arm because they're like, you know, that that's going to look a lot more real and just little touches like that. It's, there's just really, really, really great practical effects in this. So I kind of want to talk about that. So even there's a lot of talk about, you know, since then that the overall fake look of Bruce, the shark, to me, it still feels a lot more genuine and organic than if it was a CGI shark. And, and you know, and, and the same thing with like the shark attacks and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about the use of practical effects in this. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I kind of was like a, 
it's kind of interesting because it definitely pertains to what scenes still work for me. And those are the ones that actually have that element where you don't see anything and then you do it. Like for instance, when you see like, uh, I think it may have been the third shark attack or like, a, cause specifically like pertaining to like practical effects, like, I don't know, like, like the first one where you see the woman get dragged underneath. Uh, you don't really see it, but there's, I know, I think where they're like divers, it actually was something pulling her down or there was like, um, pulling her around really fast. Uh, right. It looked like she'd been dragged by a shark. Or in the third shark attack, where it's the guy on the boat, like uh, you literally see, like first you see a shoe entering the frame and you think, okay, he's fine. Like, no, it's decapitated. There's, like there's, you actually can see like the broken skin and the blood. Um, it's kind of like that moment of, they knew really well-timed the use of practical effects. Cause I would say those, cause it's funny cause I actually, my second viewing was this viewing. I had not seen Jaws in a long ass time. I, I think so for me too. I, I, I can't remember watching it since I since I was a kid. And so throughout, I was kind of keeping notes of like, okay, which scenes do I remember affecting me at the time? Which ones mm -hmm. still lingered in my mind? And which ones are still receptive? Which ones am I still reacting to the most? And so it was kind of fun logging those. Uh, of course, like, obviously we reacted most well to the chemistry and the characterization like, because they couldn't, because like, you know, what better way to, if you can't focus on the shark, focus on the characters. And, but then when there was the use of practical effects, like you said, with the arm, uh, seeing like the dead bodies, uh, those worked a lot because they were used in a more subtle cut frame. Like they, you didn't, you didn't focus too much on the leg in the water. It just kind of immediately cut to the next frame because like, you're like, that way you don't think too much. You don't think of like, was that a prosthetic? That looks like a prosthetic you just give a quick little blip and then move on. Right. And so I think that another thing has helped is not just the prosthetic effects or the um, practical effects, but the timing and the cutting when showing the practical effects helped a lot too. I can't think of a specific example outside of, I still get like churned when I see like the decapitated body parts floating in the water. <laughs> yeah. You know, so for me, I, I was actually just listening to uh, Unspooled. And they were doing an episode on the 77 Star Wars and they were talking about how that film just feels so much more organic and natural and relatable and tactile as opposed to Lucas's prequels, which are just heavily laden with, with CGI. Mm -hmm. And I, and I got thinking about that in researching for this film, because I think that had this film been made Today, it'd probably be like, uh, what's that kind of most recent shark film? Uh, the Meg. Meg, Meg. Yeah, it'd be something like that where it's just like CGI, 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 CGI. And <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and there's, I think that what, if you analyze, you know, the shot, the shots of Bruce the shark too much, like if you, you know, like paused it and kind of took a screenshot and looked at it, you'd probably be like, okay, yeah, I, I can see that this is not quite, you know, completely organic. But there's something about like this film that just feels very natural. It feels very tactile. You know, when, when you're in the water, uh, you know, when the camera's in the water, it, it, you feel like you're in the water. It, it doesn't. And you know, when there's, when you see like the shark attacks and the shark coming at you, it, there's enough of that, of that, uh, organic tactile sort of vibe to the practical effects 
that it it doesn't it feels more relatable even if it is like oh you know some i could some of this is a little fakey whereas we now have become so trained to seeing cgi that unless it's really 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 good cgi it's it it definitely doesn't look real and you know where it's it's like you said it's got that kind of uncanny valley thing where it's like well that's not quite right so it's like it's it's a turnoff and so you have to have cgi that is so 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 real looking that it doesn't have that you know just level of like uh disconnect with the viewer where i think with practical effects there's a i don't know there's just something that's interesting about or it's almost more forgivable if it's like oh it's a little cheesy but there's you know maybe it's the craftsmanship in it i i don't know yeah, I think what really helps a lot is the fact that, like you said, it is kind of viable. It is kind of like tactile because the fact that they filmed on site. Nothing was done in the studio. Everyone who's an ensemble lived in that area. It, was, yeah. it feels lived in. Uh, yes. Like like even the mother uh, who had her son died, she was a local actress. Uh, all the ensemble people were like background characters, were local fishermen. Well, so- and then even like Quint, he based his characterization off of a local Yep. A local fisherman. Yeah. Yeah. Even the way he talked, the way he looked, the style of his beard. I looked up photos of the dude. I th- he's in a wheelchair most of the time in the photos. So I don't know if he was, if he was just sitting like all, or actually was able to walk around, but no, nah, he, I'm curious to hear about Craig Kingsbury. Definitely. To see like I, what his life was like. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Spielberg really diving into his filmmaking tools in this film. He's doing a lot of different stuff, especially in terms of lighting and and cinematography. Obviously the underwater filmmaking uh, was really, really cutting edge at the time. There's a lot of split diopter shots in this where he will, he uses that in a, in a really interesting way to create uh, a, lack of depth in uh, and have like two different focal links when he has characters having discussions. There's obviously the very iconic beach zoom dolly shot that mm-hmm. he was not the first person to do that, but I think that's one of the most like famous and iconic like single shots in all of cinema history. So it almost feels like he got on this platform of like, okay, like this is, this is going to be a, a widely distributed film. I'm going to just put on my, my filmmaker's tool belt and use everything I can. Yeah. And I don't, but it doesn't feel like a, oh my gosh, this is really disjointed in terms of aesthetically. It just feels like he was really seizing the opportunity to, to you know, to, if I'm going to use the uh, analogy of like a chef where he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in, all of these extra spices to to make this this meal, if you will. Yeah, it's basically he kind of he he brought an artistic vision uh, and a and a craftsman uh, like vision because he always said he did want to be more of a craftsman director than an artistic director. I think uh, he shows that in this. Yeah, and he in very similar fashion to arguably like Tarantino even where they're such fanboys to cinema that they almost want to recreate shots in their favorite movies but applied to their own movies. There's kind of the sense of citation where like, oh, I love Hitchcock, so I'm going to do this type of shot. I love Wonders, so I'm going to do like this one shot where on, they're on the houseboat talking about not opening, uh, 
keeping the beach open uh, and very, or you see like the sense of depth of field where like you, everything in the, in the frame is moving. Every, you can see every character uh, even like, or even like, for instance, when he's on the phone talking about the shark attack, you see his son like washing off a cut in the sink. So you can see everything's in, in uh, focus. And those are all like classical Hollywood tricks. And he's using those, like you said, to benefit the movie. And also because he's a fanboy, he's like, I get to make this shot. Yay. Uh, well, yeah, and I, I think it's that, and I think he, l- like we mentioned, he is a st- is still a student of the game, but it was really, really evident that he was a student of the game as a young filmmaker, and that he, I don't want, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say that he paid homage to you know some of his favorite filmmakers, but he had, he definitely showed that he had learned a lot of his techniques from filmmakers of the past in these early outings. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that this, this film is the best early example of that. Yes. So let's talk really briefly uh, about the John Williams score. I mentioned it earlier. It really builds this sense of terror, foreboding, ominous horror. It's, so recognizable. I feel like you can, you, you don't have to even see this film and you at least know that. Oh yeah. You know it, you've heard it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, shoot, it's been repurposed. Uh, it's been referenced over and over and over again. And, And we've definitely wore our, you know, hearts on our sleeves in terms of our love for John Williams on this podcast before. But this is like during that run where he's just making the most iconic film scores of all time. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Jaws score. Uh, Like I'm with you there because I feel like, especially with John Williams in general, like even though you haven't seen the movie yet, you've heard it referenced in other pop culture. Like I knew of Jaws because there was like a spoof version of the score in like in like some PBS kids show. I remember like Arthur did a spoof on Jaws briefly. So I'm like, oh, so this is what that is referencing to. Yeah. And so that it's kind of fun to have like that different doorway lead you into the actual like original source. And like, and kind of like, like we were saying that this movie is multi-genred. So is the score because it'll go from this sense of like, uh, like, you know, old school Americana town kind of vibe to more like, uh, impending dread and horror to kind of like uh, surprise and shock and awe when you see the actual attacks go when it goes like dun, 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 a little more faster pace and then it'll yeah. slow down to match kind of the slow ocean waves and where there's no action going on only dialogue yeah. and shift to like this sense of adventure where they're like fighting off the shark and winning where they're like searching for the shark by laying bait they, well, and I think that's his bread and butter. And, and I think that's why the main theme of this score is so interesting because it is quite different than what his bread and butter is. Because his bre- bread and butter is the adventurous military style march. That's what he's known for. You've got, you know, like a like a Star Wars, like a Indiana Jones where it's just, it's very triumphant. There's, you know, tons of brass in it. And it's just, ah, rah, rah, rah. But then this is like really just, you know, what those kind of like kill scenes and everything. 
it's it's so different. It's such a left turn for mm-hmm. for him, and, and I I think that's why it it stands out so much. So, kind of wrapping it up here because I know uh, we got a bit of a, a a time crunch here. Let's quickly talk about the characterization of the the main three characters of Brody, Quint, and Hooper, and the, the casting, and which. That's interesting. Like they didn't cast these guys until like literal days before they were like principal photography, which mm-hmm. is insane to me. And same thing with like doing, you know, a script rewrites and everything. So like the preparation on this film was not great. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the characters, they, they're they're all so different from each other. But then they have this one common goal and that kind of leads to their, their differences because we have this like, th- you know, through basically kind of the the three quarters of the film is them going on this hunt and you know they're all kind of stuck on this boat and so that that leads to some interesting conflicts between the characters and some of the more even comedic moments uh but it sounds like that the on-screen relationships were kind of parallel to the behind the scenes relationships Mm -hmm. so let's just kind of briefly talk about that yeah, from all the interviews that I'm finding and all the research and them reading up on, it seems like everyone would kind of was not necessarily dragging their heels, but they definitely were like, uh, this is not literally what we were expecting to get into, or they're doing it because they need like a movie to do, or they need the money, or like, or they're under contract. There are all these kind of like these things where this is, wasn't their first pick of movie to do. They Because they weren't the first choice of actors. And for these actors, this probably wasn't their first choice of film to do. So it's kind of right. like, I feel like there's, kind of that in play there's kind of like a the whole like uh, i guess we're gonna do it because you look at the list of people that they were hopeful to get and what they ended up almost getting it kind of weirdly shows who were kind of the hot shit actors at the time like you see charlton heston was gonna play brody you see robert duvall was originally supposed to play brody but he wouldn't play quint but they wouldn't give him quint you see people like john voigt joel gray from cabaret who won the oscar at that decade jeff bridges was supposed to play uh uh hooper which I could see, because he, especially with that beard. And then you see other people, like, uh, who are this long list of people. And I think what's weird about movies where the actors weren't so keen, they end up being the perfect option. Like, you cannot, I cannot imagine this movie being without Robert Shaw as Quint, without, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, Roy Schreider as uh, Chief Brody, without um, uh, Richard Dreyfus as Hooper everyone kind of in a way it work. it kind of, especially I think with uh, time going by, we look back and they're like, Oh, these are how we see the characters. So I think what's interesting about, it sounds like behind the scenes. And then also what played out on camera is each of those three main cast members are kind of at all three different points of the spectrum. To me, (laughs) from the stories I've heard, it sounds like, you know, you've got, Robert Shaw at one end, you've got Richard Dreyfuss at the other, and then Roy Schreider is kind of like in the middle where he had some conflicts with both of them, but it, it sounded like to me that he's kind of, hey, like keeping it all together. And that's very much plays out on screen too, because if let's just say this was a narrative that you've just got Hooper and Quint going out on a on a shark hunt, they probably would have killed each other <laughs> before oh, yeah. they even caught the shark. And so I, I, I think that dynamic is really, really interesting. And then I, I like also that the Brody character is very reluctant. Like he doesn't want to go out on the water. And 
I think that having him be that one character that's not comfortable with that, and then the other two are gung-ho, is also just a really, really good characterization, and, and, and it makes sense. He fits right in the middle between them. One thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but have you noticed that, like, I I want to I want to think that even though they're they're adaptations, so maybe maybe not, but I want to think that Richard Dreyfuss's character in this movie and Close Encounters are like cousins because they're like kind of weirdly similar. This is why. This is why I know why. Okay, okay is, is this a, is this a thing? Yes, no, this is, you're you're not you're 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 on the right track because this is why. Uh, when since of course uh, Richard Dreyfuss was casted very late, they had to rewrite a lot of the character because the studio even said if we adapt the book for Vadim, it would not have been a good movie because the book is so much different. There's actually an affair between Hooper's Hooper and uh, and the Brody's wife. Right, and right. It, very weird kind of character parallels. They're totally uh, different. It would not have worked in the movie in my opinion, but. Because they had to rewrite a lot of uh, Hooper's characterizations to better complement Richard Dreyfuss, uh, even just visually, uh, Steven Spielberg actually kind of wrote uh, himself as like, because uh, for a while, like uh, Richard Dreyfuss was kind of the alter ego in Steven Spielberg's movies. Because so literally, like Spielberg kind of emplaced himself in a lot of his early works. Not necessarily in the Hitchcockian sense, but in terms of uh, uh, personalities. So he put a little bit of himself in the Richard Dreyfuss character of Hooper. He put a little bit of himself in the character in Close to Character of the Third Kind, uh, which it's almost like he's translating his own sense of awe in the creators and in the character. So no, you're you're right because a lot of times there was an intentional. I'm going to write this character to be my uh, inner place. Okay, that makes sense then because I that struck me because I, like I said I hadn't seen this movie in twenty plus years, and I, when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, man, like there, like there's there's definitely some at least you know spiritual connection between those characters. It feels like, and and I don't feel like that was like Dreyfus being a lazy actor and like, well, fuck it, I'm just gonna <laughs> just do this role twice because yeah. there there are differences, but just they're kind of. They're both very idiosyncratic characters. Yeah. And I think that the way that they were written and the way that Dreyfus um, portrayed them is kind of his bread and butter. Like that kind of uh, uh, intense idiosyncratic sort of character is really in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. All right. It's let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Think, go ahead. One thing I want to say is I. It's kind of weird when you look at the arc of some of these actors' careers, and it still baffles me how big of a leading man Richard Dreyfuss was in the seventies. Because like he won, he won a Best Actor for uh, beating a bunch of other people for like this role where he plays just like this out of work actor who gets casted as this flamboyantly gay Richard the uh, Third in this production Richard the Third, and like and he like kind of plays the same shtick in a lot of his movies. This very excited kind of like a New York accent, like I'm Richard Dreyfuss and I'm in this movie. Get used to it. Like and it, it's just, and then like, and he apparently was uh, getting on amphetamines at the time during the filming of this. So like, oh. I'm wondering, oh, would that explain his weird energy level and throughout his career as an actor? But like, no, it's just kind of weird to look at like. He, he is like, he is very intense and it, like excitable. Yes. In a lot of uh, 
in a lot of his roles. And it's, he's like, I, I don't know. I, I keep going back to the word idiosyncratic. I, I feel like that's, that's yeah, him as an actor still, and him, him as, as a character when he, you know, so. And he still bashes this movie. He does not think his performance is at all good. Uh, so unfortunately he's kind of not, he's not necessarily poo-pooing Jaws, but he definitely, I don't think he has the greatest memories, but I mean, like of that movie, even though we, I think it's one of his best performances. Like, I would have. I think that and Close Encounters are his best performances. Oh yeah, I think I think he should have been nominated for both roles. If not, yeah. Robert Shaw should have won Best Supporting Actor that year for that scene alone. So let's transition into kind of uh, the last topic I want to talk about. So Jaws is in the National Film Registry, which I think is well deserved, and we kind of talked about this in the intro of the show. It's on the AFI Top 100. It's number 56. It has dropped a bit since the uh, 1997 list. I think it was somewhere in the 40s, like, and yeah. then now, so it's 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 dropped a bit in the uh, 2007 list, which is now it's well over 10 years. They used to do them every every 10 years, so it's hard to say when we're going to get another one. And then, like we said, it's not on the IMD Top 250 anymore. I want to talk about it's obviously still held in some regard, but like I had mentioned, maybe this film has kind of crossed that line of it doesn't maybe hold up for this newer generation of, of, you know, film goers that are, that are, you know, younger than us. Uh, Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is, you know, considered one of the greatest films of all time it's right now still on the afi top 100 but it's not in the top 250 list why do you think that is do you think it should be on the imdb top 250 do you think 56 on the afi list is fair it's it's tricky because i feel like both lists have kind of a different agenda in mind uh i think that definitely and i think whenever making a list of great movies, I think one needs to define what they're looking for. Are you looking for ones who have, have had importance and relevance and are groundbreaking? Or do you want to just do popular movies? It, and I feel like one needs to be very careful how they define it. Because I feel like Unspool was dabbling that territory where they're like, oh, we shouldn't have more than we shouldn't have more than two films per director. We got to be diverse. We got to be inclusive. And I'm like, yes, as long as you say that that's what your goal is. But I feel like AFI, their notion is just nominate their favorite movies, which was like, or the best friends, especially because the Academy of Voters knew all the movies from the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and the 40s versus 80s and 90s and more modern. Right. Now, we are kind of more exposed to more modern movies, I would say. So I feel like those are kind of in more reachable in our kind of our uh, collective mindset and our interest. So I think there's that in play. Mm -hmm. I do think they're... I'm not saying Jaws is my least favorite, favorite Spielberg movie. He has done better movies, but because of Jaws. So I feel like Jaws should be put in that mark of this has created everything we have now. Uh, but if I were to pick, put a single or even two Spielberg movies, I don't, in a top 100 list, it's hard to say if I would put Jaws in there or not. Cause like I have so many other favorite uh, Spielberg films. So I think there's, there needs to be a lot of questions in play before we would probably would re have to define the more modern AFI top 100, like what do we want to include? Right. So, you know, it's interesting. I, 
in terms of an AFI top 100, if the parameters don't get changed mm-hmm. and it's just this like board of people that are voting on this, I, I am certain that it will drop in the next list whenever that is. I don't know if it's going to drop off. Um, and so 56, that feels fine to me. I mean, shoot, I'd be, I'd be okay if this was in like 75, 80 territory. Um, but then I don't know as the list currently is, I think, yes, it should be on there because it is like the, the first summer blockbuster and it really kicks off a legendary filmmaker's career. Yes. So that seems appropriate to me. Um, but, and it's a totally different conversation. Like you said, if, if let's say they do make some parameters for the next list and it's no more than two per filmmaker, you know, yeah. like, so it's let's, 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 I think. let's whittle it down to two Scorsese. Let's whittle it down to, to two Spielbergs. That's a different conversation. Um, but right now as the list currently is, that's not how it's done. So, and perhaps it should be. But then you've got the other end of the spectrum, like we said, with IMDb, IMDb Top 250, which is the Wild West. And I am disappointed that it's not on that list. And it's yeah. what's interesting is it's all an algorithm. It, it doesn't, you know, uh, we have no control over that. That's purely, I don't necessarily think that that dings its contribution to culture and to film history. But I think that it is, it's very clear to me that that is not a film that is currently being watched a whole lot. I'm curious, I'm curious to know how the IMDb top 250 would be if their algorithm wasn't in place. If it was more of a manual human kind of calculation like the AFI wouldn't be. I'm curious to know how that would affect the list. Like, Well... I, I don't, it has to be that algorithm, uh, algorithm though. Cause then it is going to be like the AFI list. Like if there's any sort of human control and it's not purely just a mathematical equation, that is basically a formula that is taken into consideration how many votes it has and the average vote. Um, yeah. And, and, and in that regard, like I think it does take out a lot of the, uh, buddy system, <laughs> Yes, the, you know, that bias, that bias, the, 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 the good old boy system. Uh, but then I think, like you said, there's, I think it suffers from the recency effect where honestly, there's films that are like in the top 100 on that list that I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, you know, like really? Like, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, let's, let's pull it up. Uh, Cause I'm definitely let's just, let's pick, pick my something here on a lot of film entries. Like the film I put 10 stars, like three years ago, I would probably put the seven stars. Now I feel like, so it's definitely the impulse rating are more versus like updated. Okay. I, I not to pick on Hamilton again, but I'm going to go back to Hamilton. Cause it's just, it's, it's just <laughs> glaring. It's staring me at the face. It's 24. And that is, I'm just going to throw a few out that are kind of sandwiched around it. Mm-hmm. That is above 25. It's a wonderful life. 26 star Wars episode for a new hope. I'm sorry. In terms of like 
you know, cultural significance and in, in the medium of motion pictures, that should not be above a new hope. I, I, and then uh, that's also above saving private Ryan. If we're talking, um, you know, Spielberg, I, dude, I don't know. That's all over the place. Uh, Art, so oh. go ahead. I was just going to say, cause I feel like I'm curious to know, like, okay, to say votes. Cause I, I'm curious. I'm like, obviously like the more popular recognizable movie will get more votes than the one that's like, probably a better movie, but not seen by today's demographic. Like, well, but th- that's the interesting thing about the algorithm though, because it can have, so for instance, if you go all the way to the bottom, um, holy shit, this already changed since yesterday when I was looking at it. It's got a different one on the bottom. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. So that's the, you so it was? I don't even know what this film is. Okay. It looks like it is an Indian film. Um, Moonabai, MBBS made in 2003. So what's interesting. So since this is like an international, um, list, I mean, I, I don't know anything about this film. So it's got an 8.1 and average uh, rating 71,136 votes, which is in terms of, you know, how many votes Jaws has that, is far less, but if there are less people that are consistently giving this a higher rating because of the algorithm and the, the formula they have set up, it will beat Jaws out where Jaws has, like I said, 555,000 or whatever it is with an average score of eight. But you got to think of how many new votes is that getting? Obviously probably not that much because technically a newer film that just has more votes. And if you have like those outlier ones of people giving it tens and everything, it, that, that average is going to make a, a, a median that's going to have that be higher on the list. Oh, yeah. So I think that that's the fascinating thing about it. And I'm not surprised to see a handful of Bollywood movies made in India because they, they have such a bigger population. So the sure. prime, and also like, and they have a huge studio uh, movie industry. So it doesn't surprise me. But like, it's definitely, I'm like curious to know, like, okay. And also everyone's on the internet. There's more people that are probably using it IMDb than the early 2000s. Oh, so for like, sure. Sure. I'm almost wondering, I personally want to know if they have an archival draft of what the very first top 250 was. So it's not them, but they, I found this website that tracks that. And that's what I, that's when I knew, that's how I found out when Jaws dropped off. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just 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 Google it up. Uh, you can Google any films like um, IMDb history, and it'll show like there's this website that it'll show when it debuted on the list, and it has this like graph of of how it's been affected. And you see this in the kind of like two, early 2000s to like 2010s. There's this stark drop off with Jaws. So I guess that leads into like my kind of my, my last little question that's just still piggybacking on this of do you does this film hold up for you? And, you know, because we can really only speak to like our personal, you know, thoughts on it. Does it hold up to you? And what what do you think that Jaws legacy is? It does hold up to me because I was very surprised by how much I uh, as an audience member was reacting to this movie. I'm like thinking I have not seen this in at least a good 12 years, if not 15 years. And so I'm like, I'm like, and the fact that I am still able to watch it, it is rewatchable. 
not only from just the importance of the film made when I'm looking at, oh, this is what everything has copied or inspired by, but I'm looking at the characterization is still so soft and watchable. The direction is still so great. The shots are so fun to, to watch from just a analytical perspective and an audience perspective. And I would, would rewatch this definitely next year or in a couple of years from now and still feel the same way. And I think that's its legacy is the fact that not many can say that a horror movie is rewatchable because this one doesn't depend on the scare factor. It has, since it has so much good strength in its direction and uh, and, the, and the characterization of its characters. And I think that's what's definitely helped it stay afloat when we may not react to the scary moments, but we're reacting to the human moments. I completely agree. I, I It held up. I was pleasantly surprised with how much it held up for me. Because, you know, we've talked about that just recently with kind of doing these quarantine watch lists mm-hmm. um, and how sometimes where there could be that like, hmm, this didn't quite hold up. Or there's that interesting thing of somebody who maybe didn't see it, you know, 20 years ago, or if you're older than us, you know, in 75, and then they're seeing it for the first time in 2020. And it's like, eh. so, but, they influenced. Yeah. Right. I, I think that across the board, this holds up. I think maybe the, that effect of not being on the IMDb top 250 list is more that this film just isn't getting watched as much anymore yes. by, by maybe, you know, maybe the younger generation or just, just in general. I, I don't know. Cause, cause like you said, we're, we're inundated, we're flooded with uh, media content and there's just so many more films coming out per year. Um, aside from this year, this, this is a weird outlier, but, uh, um, I think that it's legacy is, one of not only it being the first summer blockbuster, I, I think it, it's much more than that. I think it is a technically very sound film. And I think it is one of the most important films, it, it you know, if not in American cinema, in cinema history, you know, even if it's purely for the fact that it was the just kickoff of one of the greatest directors of, of, of all time, you know, his career. But I think, shoot, if this was a one and done, you know, film for, for Spielberg, we'd probably still be, you know, talking about it in in some regard. But I, I, I think that it definitely, it, its legacy is also Spielberg's legacy. Mm -hmm. So for that, I think he's one of the most important filmmakers we have. And for that, I think it's one of the most important films that that, that we have. So, I think it belo- it does belong in the National Film Registry, and uh, I just hope to God that it doesn't get remade. <laughs> yeah. But I, I I heard some some rumblings that there you know there are people that want to remake this. I feel like they have, but spiritually, like with the Meg or Sharknado, there's always going to be these almost like tongue in cheek, like stop it, don't <laughs> stop it, people, stop it people in Hollywood. You don't need to remake all these classic uh, films from the 70s and 80s. Stop it. Stop it. All right. Well, with that, this has been uh, a great time. We took a real big bite out of this subject. Zing. Yes. Fade to black, the end, or in this case, Finn. 
<laughs> very good. Very good. All right, my friend, this was really, really fun. I know you got to get out of here and uh, get back to the real world uh, outside mm-hmm. of the nerds with opinions universe and the jaws universe. This is a fun talk though. And yeah. uh, people that are listening will, we will revisit the IMDb top 250 because it is a fan, uh, a fascinating subject. And, uh, but this was just a fun conversation about one of the greatest films of all time. So thanks, Jimmy. Yep. Thanks, Matt. Okay, nerds, that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to my guest host, Jimmy Levins, for joining me discussing Jaws at length. I think we'll be doing this sort of thing, kind of going back to some classics. And my my big goal, we talked about it in the episode, is to discuss some of the films that are on the IMDb Top 250 because it's kind of fascinating to me. And obviously that was my intention with this, but apparently it's not on the Top 250 anymore which is to me, again, a, a bit of a travesty, but I, uh, I understand it's, it's not as recent, which is an interesting, interesting thing for better or for worse about the IMDb Top 250. But regardless, Jaws, its legacy cannot be denied. So I hope you enjoyed this and I hope it had inspired you to go back and watch Jaws anew. If you're digging what we're doing here on Nerds with Opinions, make sure you are following me on social media at nerds underscore opinions on both Twitter and Instagram and nerds with opinions on Facebook. If you're listening to this on Apple podcasts, rate and review the episode. It really helps me out. If you're on Spotify, make sure you're following nerds with opinions. And if you feel so inclined, share this episode with your homies. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin, and you have been listening to nerds with opinions.